thoroughly enjoying our exposition of uh, the Gospel of John. This is our 81st sermon in this Gospel. Uh, We're approaching the two-year mark as we really value the authority of God's Word here at Disciples Church. We want to teach it well. We want to teach it thoroughly. We believe that God wants to to speak mightily into our lives to bring um, transformation and sanctification and reform and, and as the purpose of John's gospel stated at the end of this chapter, chapter 20, belief for those who have yet not believed. As a result of our recent study in in John's gospel, we know that the Lord Jesus was killed, was buried, and before the sun came up on the third day, he was not found in the tomb. The stone had been rolled away so that the witnesses could enter and see that he had left behind his burial wraps, for he did not need them any longer, for he was not dead, but alive. The Proto-Evangelion has been fulfilled. The Proto-Evangelion is the, the first gospel pronouncement by God in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, saying that a seed, the seed of the woman, would rise up, that the enemy would bruise his heel, but not defeat him. Instead, the promised one would defeat sin and death and stomp the head of the snake in great victory. Satan thought he won. Jesus was murdered and left for dead in the grave. But up from the grave he arose. Amen? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 54 through 58. As we pick up today in chapter 20 of John's Gospel, verse 11, we find Mary by the tomb, still unaware that Jesus has risen. Look with me at verse 11 through 13 of John 20. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Here, Mary uniquely gives us both a model of right mourning and a model of wrong mourning. First, a model of right mourning. It was love for Christ, her Lord, that caused her to weep in his absence. Notice she describes Jesus to the angels as my Lord, thus expressing the depths of her affections for him. Blessed is anyone who knows the Lord as my Lord. He is Lord. This is true and unchanging whether you believe it or not, whether you admit it or not. 
The question is, is he your Lord? David most famously said in the 23rd Psalm, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. Do you know him? Do you know him personally? It is one thing to have met a famous person, to have sat in a meeting with someone or spent time near someone, to know someone maybe who knows someone else who's famous. But it's an entirely different thing to know them personally. To know them at such a level that they are best defined by the personal possessive, my. Even the demons profess Jesus to be Lord. They declare him Lord, understand that he is God, but he is not their Lord. And that is why they're damned to eternity. Is he your Lord? Meaning, he is your master. And you are his joyful servant. Meaning he is Lord of your entire life. Do you know him and love him like Mary did? I pray you do. If not today, then soon. There is not a sweeter thing, not a greater thing than to know Jesus as your Lord. So Mary's mourning for her Lord who had died was right. We mourn in the absence of someone we have loved and lost. This is a good and right thing, modeled even for us by Jesus himself. We saw this back in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Most famous short verse of verse 35 says that Jesus wept. Jesus weeps in the absence of his loved one. That is what mourning is. It is the tears and the heartache that come in the absence of someone we love. Mourning is not for the weak or for the misinformed. It's for anyone who has loved another in meaningful relationship. I believe mourning is designed into us by God himself. It's a proper reaction for the absence of someone we love. Notice verse 36 in John 11. If you remember, he's So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Testify of Jesus' love for Lazarus. Jesus did not ever sin. And so in Jesus modeling this morning, he shows us that it is not a lack of faith by which we experience real hurt and loss in the absence of a loved one. But again, Christ, who who knows that he is about to raise Lazarus. His emphasis is not as much in the thought of being apart from Lazarus as it might be for us in the absence of someone we love, but more focused on the reality of death and what that means for mankind. As Christians, our mourning for other Christians needs to be grounded in hope and knowledge that his physical death is not their end. Their physical death, his or her death, is not their end. Paul said it well, to live is Christ and to die is gain in Christ. 
So, a right understanding of mourning. Now, it was a lack of faith that caused Mary to walk by sight and not by faith. This is where Mary's mourning is misinformed or lacking because Jesus is not dead but risen. Just as he told them he would be. She has forgotten the power of God and the words of the Lord that he will rise. So while on one side she rightly mourns his absence because she has a deep love for her Lord, on the other hand, there is a lack of faith or a lack of good application of faith that causes her to look down instead of lifting her eyes to God where her hope is. We all are vulnerable to this. We too can get so caught up and being focused on what we can see and or what we're going through that we miss living out our faith based on God and His promises, and what we can't see, and many things that we don't fully understand. That's why it's faith. How often in your life, as you look back, have you shed tears or worried deeply about something that never actually came to pass? Well, Scriptures speak often about why worrying is worthless. I want to draw out the aim of our hearts in times like these. When our flesh is tempted to overcling to temporary things and changes we're going through and to loss and hurt and let it overwhelm us and define us and, and, and put us down, instead, we must in faith draw heavenward and not be trapped in the momentary afflictions we find ourselves in, thereby throwing away what it means to be alive in Christ, what it means to hope in Christ, what it means to, to be his. Paul has great encouragements in this vein often. A few from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5, the first in chapter 4, 17 and 18. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says simply, we walk by faith and not by sight. May we have faith that reminds our hearts and our minds that the Lord is on His throne. He is at work in all things, even when we can't see the fullness of it or don't understand. He is at work in all things for our good and for His glory. So instead of looking down like Mary did, may we say with the psalmist, I lift my eyes to the hills, for where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 121, 1 and 2. Reading further in our passage, John 20, 14 through 16, having said this, 
She turned around and saw Jesus standing. She did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. The word of the Lord reveals to us 11 appearances that our Savior made between his resurrection and his ascension. In order, number one, to Mary here first, Mary Magdalene, in our text today. Number two, to certain women returning from the tomb, as we read in Matthew's Gospel 28, 9, and 10. Then to Simon Peter in Luke 24, 34. To the two disciples going to Emmaus in Luke 24, 13. To the ten apostles in the upper room in John 20, verse 19. To the eleven apostles in the upper room in John 20, 26-29, as Thomas joins them. We'll study that next week. To seven disciples fishing at the Sea of Tiberias in John 21. To the eleven apostles and possibly other disciples with them in Matthew 28, 16. To 500 people at one time, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. To James, also stated in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. To the eleven apostles and possibly other disciples on the Mount of Olives at his ascension in Acts 1. After his ascension, he appeared to Stephen in Acts 7, to Saul on the way to Damascus in Acts 9, and finally to John at Patmos, as testified in Revelation chapter 1. What a testimony of proof that the resurrected Jesus revealed himself in physical person to such a wide audience of people. This is the biggest evidence that Jesus Christ did indeed rise from the dead. Eyewitness accounts have always been used to validate the accuracy of any published report or to prove the events of a crime scene or to prove a story true. Understand that Jesus did not appear to a limited, hidden, controversial few people. He appeared to more than 500 people and on one occasion 500 at once. So in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul basically says, if you don't believe me about the resurrected Lord, just go ask these people who are still around. Pretty strong testimony. If we gave each of those 500 plus eyewitnesses six minutes on the stand to give their account, we would have 50 hours of the most lopsided trial in history. Sorry, your six minutes is over. The next guy's got to come up here. <laughs> Additionally, these eyewitnesses were not stereotyped or boxed into a similar type or way. He saw Mary in the morning, the travelers to Emmaus in the afternoon, the apostles at night. Some saw him outside, some saw him indoors. The reactions were varying in emotion. Some were overwhelmed, frightened, questioning. Some worshiped him. 
One of the details, though, that I find that is extra special about this first revealing of, of the resurrection Christ is who he revealed himself to first. He picked Mary. He picked a woman. I say that not because a woman is of lesser value than a man. God's word is clear that men and women are of equal value in God's eyes. And so proves it. In a culture that largely looked down on women, the Holy Lord raises the bar by blessing Mary first to see him in his resurrected state. Also realize Mary is not of any great importance in the economy of her day. She was once a resident of Satan himself, as Jesus' first ministry to her was to rid her body of the demons that indwelt her. Church, our God is a good God, a God of grace, a God of love for all people. His forgiveness and his love is cast on the worst of the worst of sinners and the most downcast and the most outcast of society. Can I encourage you to never stop praying and witnessing to those who fit these descriptions in your life that if they're still alive, that in God's sovereign plan, He is able more than able to redeem them to save them and set them on a new course that honors him. No one is outside of his reach. Everybody is equal before the cross of Jesus. Every man and woman adopted in his family is precious in his sight. Rejoice with me in the absence of class and rank when it comes to the gospel of grace. No race or gender or rap sheet, or physical impairment, or mental slowness, or social status, is outside of the far-reaching arms of redemption and restoration and love that Jesus brings to those who trust in him as Lord and Savior. Now it says in John 20, verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. <clears throat> she turned if you slow down and really consider what she just did there, not knowing who's going to be in sight, she's turning away from two brilliant angels. <laughs> and this is a remarkable fact. Why? Because what are you looking for that would cause you to turn away from the presence of two brilliant angels before you? And the answer is Jesus. He is all she was interested in. I love this. I love her deep love and devotion for Jesus. A.W. Pink, a theologian of old, said it well. He said, if Christ really occupied the throne of our hearts, the poor things of this world would make no appeal to us. It is because we are so little absorbed with him and therefore so little acquainted with his soul-satisfying perfection that the things of time and sense are so highly esteemed. Oh, that writer and reader 
may be able to say with the psalmist and say with an ever-increasing fervor, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Psalm 73, 25. May it be so in our hearts to constantly make war with the over-affections of his creation that we would put our greatest affections on him, our creator. It says she doesn't recognize him. It goes on. Look at verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. This is her lack of faith again. That she is doubting of the possibility of the resurrection. To whatever degree, she's not in tune with the presence of someone she knows well. And we can get here too, where we get so focused on the moment, so focused on the hurt, so focused on on our feelings, that we become blind even when our eyes are open. She had no scope to consider that the man before her was Jesus, was someone she knew. To walk by faith and not by sight is to truly trust in the deepest places of our hearts that the impossible is possible in God. It's not like she hadn't seen him before, but she thought he was the gardener. Now watch what happens, though, when instead of addressing her as woman and with general questions, he takes a deeper aim at her by speaking her name. John 20, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. In Christ addressing Mary by name, we have a beautiful illustration of his own words that we saw in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 3, when he said, The sheep hear his voice, speaking of the good shepherd, speaking of himself, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. It says his sheep hear his voice. They have ears to hear They know him, and he knows them. And he calls them individually by name. It does not say he calls the sheep by name, but instead he calls his own sheep by name. His own sheep are those who have been given to him by the Father from all eternity. And when he calls all these sheep, they will come to him. For it is written in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. What a beautiful picture of one of Jesus' sheep being called by name and they hear his voice and respond with elation and devotion. Isaiah 43, 1, But now thus says the Lord, 
He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Notice she calls him rabbi. She recognizes her master, her teacher, her Lord. The true followers of Jesus don't just love him as Savior, as much of modern Christianity has taught them to do. Somehow trying to put through a repeat-after-me incantation the Lord Jesus in their back pocket so that they would not burn in hell but have reign in his heavenly courts. Oh, how we belittle what it means to know God. That he is the highest prize, not heaven, God is. And our heavenly eternity with him is so great not because of anything in heaven but him. True followers of Jesus don't just love him as Savior, they love him as Lord, as Master, as Teacher, as one who is authoritative, as one who is worthy to obey his teachings and his commands. John chapter 14 23 and 24, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make a home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Do you love your master? By his own definition, then, do you love his commands? Do you follow him and obey him in all you do? John chapter 10, 4, When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. <clears throat> when we study this passage, I had mentioned that western shepherds would often drive their sheep from behind, but eastern shepherds would lead them by walking ahead that the sheep know his voice and they follow the shepherd. What's remarkable about this is when you consider for a moment who Jesus is. He is God in flesh. Eternal and worthy of worship in every way, creator and sustainer of all things. And yet Jesus doesn't command us to go somewhere he wasn't willing to go. He is so far above us and yet has humbled himself in every way to not have anything he's called us to that he's not been willing to do himself. He truly leads us in this way. He has paved the way. The Christian life is to follow Jesus in every way. He sacrificed, he suffered, he served, he surrendered, he was faithful, he was obedient, he was loving, he stood for truth. He was mocked. He was cast out. It makes sense then when Jesus says to us, his sheep, his faithful followers, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. 
If we want to go where he has gone, we have to be willing to follow him all the way there. If a sheep did not belong to that shepherd, it would not follow. If Jesus is not your shepherd and your Lord, you will not faithfully follow him. Like many we have seen in the Gospel of John so far, you may get caught up in the crowd, in the fanfare, loving church or religion or the things that come with it for a time. But when it comes to real commitment and faith and obedience, if Jesus is not your shepherd, you will find a way to walk away. We must stop standing on the testimony that says, oh yeah, back in the day, I was a committed follower of Christ. I was a member of the church. No, sheep who have walked away are not following the shepherd. Could, can there be wayward sheep that return? Absolutely. But to stand only on what was in the past is to not follow the shepherd. Christianity is not qualified in nostalgia. It's qualified, according to Scripture, in enduring faith and obedience and fruit. We'll be known by our fruit. So what is the Master's command for His faithful servant? Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. <clears throat> but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is a passage that many translators and theologians have debated the nuance of the emphasis of Jesus' words here. I believe that the ESV's use in my own study for the, of the word cling is most helpful in understanding what Jesus is emphasizing to Mary here. She is all of a sudden overwhelmed with joy and relief that Jesus is not dead but alive, rightfully so. He is victorious and he is present with her. But Jesus saying this is not the end goal. He must go to the Father. Do you remember his words in John 16, 7-11? I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Oh, I love how the words that Jesus spoke in his teaching and training are constantly fulfilled in these last pages of John's testimony, in the happenings of his death, resurrection, and ascension. He must ascend to the Father to the Father's side and send the Holy Spirit to do the greater work that the Holy Spirit will do in the season to come. 
staying and settling in with Mary and his followers is not part of the plan. And so he's helping her have bigger eyes for the moment to say, you can't hold me, cling to me here. There's another step in this process that's for your good. I must first ascend. That is the next order of business. I believe that Jesus points her to the Father and the disciples as she's supposed to give these words to them to highlight that he is God and to highlight the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The reality of her hope and worship is in the triune God, not in Christ apart from the Father or the Spirit. The rest of her life would be lived out, not with Jesus at her side. Mary would finish her days with the reality of the ascended, physical ascension of Christ, who reigns at the right hand of the Father, and who daily intercedes for her and all of us until he returns. Look at verse 18, John 20, 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples. She obeyed his command. I can imagine it would be hard to leave his presence. Her flesh is surely struggling with that, as is the reason for his clarity for her. He, she went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Have you ever been so blessed to get to share amazing news with a group of people that you were the one that got to share it? It's a really cool thing to get to be able to do that. That was the joy of John the Baptist, to get to be the announcer of Christ, to tell a watching world, the promised Messiah is here. And now it used to be this special, wonderful gift to announce to the others, he's alive. Do you realize that this is our privileged role in, with today? With essentially why God has given us today. And if he ordains it, why he would give us tomorrow. That we would testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that those whom he intends to save would hear and believe and be saved. May it never lose its great joy for us to get to do that. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Later that evening on Sunday night, the disciples were stashed out in a room with the doors locked. Things were tense in the wake of Jesus' death. Now that Jesus was out of the way, his faithful followers were the target of many of the Jews who wanted to finish the purge of this Christianity nonsense in the eyes of Jewish thought and religion. We've got to get rid of this. All of a sudden, Jesus is in the room there among them. In a time that was fearful 
in a moment that was surely scary, all of a sudden Jesus is there. No closed or locked doors could keep out the conqueror of death. Amen? Think about that. We can try to hide. Maybe you've erected walls, deep, high walls in your life over a lifetime by which you think God is too far away to surely find you. Never, no way the Holy God would go through and get through your mess your barriers of unbelief and sinful rebellion. But hear me today. If Jesus wants in, no one's keeping him out, including you. If he wants your life, he will have it. For never has there been a person whom he has unstopped their ears and opened up their blind eyes, who in their first true hearing of the gospel in all of its depth and glory, true spiritual clarity, they've denied it. Our answer in this reborn state and the graceful work of God will always be, yes, yes, Yes. Praise God that he is the one in control of our new birth. I'm thankful that he's not held captive or at arm's length by the prison of walls that we have erected over a lifetime of sin and even an effort to keep him out. (laughs) So there he stands. Stands right in the middle of that room. And what does he say? He says, peace be with you. A potent declaration with many layers of application, so let's take some time to unpack them this morning. First, consider the fact that many of his most faithful disciples ran and hid in the wake of his arrest and execution. They had forsaken him. Also, Peter, who denied him not once, denied not even knowing him twice. I don't even know that man three times. Human logic would say that Jesus' first words to these guys in that room would be to look at them in the eyes and say, shame on you. You get chill saying it. Right? Shame on you. You were were my best of the best. And you failed. But even though they they chose in those moments to serve and protect themselves in Jesus' darkest hour, a declaration of rebuke to them in that room, in that moment, does not fit. Why? Why? Because he had forgiven them. Right? 
He doesn't do what you and I do if our flesh is leading us to finally get in your presence and go, shame on you. Not only had he forgiven them, he paid the debt they owe him. He paid it. And because he had forgiven them, because he loves them, what are his words for them? Encouragement and peace. What a testimony of the gospel. What a power of God to transform lives. When those deserving penalty and deserving to be thrown out are received with love and forgiveness and peace, Thank you, God, for grace. We are saved, as we've sung already today, by grace alone. For we were undeserving in every way. Nothing good did we bring. And you were unobligated to save us, your enemies, In every way, righteous in your judgment and wrath over sin, and yet, Lord, in grace, you chose to save us and set us free. Jesus paid the highest price in our place so that justice would be had. Forgiveness would be ours. New life in Christ. Lord, you are to be forever praised. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Second, can you imagine the feeling of completeness that the disciples must have felt all of the sudden to be united again with their master? I mean, this was their life every day for the last three years. They had left their businesses, their careers, their families, their hometowns to walk and talk and minister with and be trained by Jesus every day to serve him, to do what he told them to do. I can't even imagine how undone they must have felt in those three, three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, until this now on Sunday night. to be together again. They're now with their rock, their leader, their rabbi, their Lord. Surely while his presence was startling, Can you imagine the layer of true peace that they instantly felt at his presence again? Now, third, while peace be with you, as Jesus declares to them, instead of rebuke or disdain, 
as they deserved, but he forgave them. So that there's a gift there, a, a gospel wonder and peace be with you. That that's good. And while his physical presence must have been a sweet relief to be back together again, both the things we've already covered, he's giving them something more here. It's the third piece, third layer. And this is what you and I have in Christ too. So let's dig into the depth of the peace that Jesus gives for a moment. Number one, it is, when he says peace be with it is peace with God. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are justified by faith in Jesus are no longer enemies of God because of our sin, due his righteous wrath. We are his blood-bought children. Peace with God is the greatest prize. Number two, we have inner peace. We have true shalom. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends our understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So when you're in the midst of those moments that just do not add up, what is happening it's falling apart. It's coming at me. None of this makes sense. There is a peace in Christ that we have, the peace of God, which transcends our understanding. And hopefully you've seen it. Hopefully you've experienced it. When true men and women of faith are in the midst of life's worst, and they genuinely see your peace, and it makes no sense to them. inner peace and shalom. We also have peace among the brethren. Three verses to share. Colossians 3.15 Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body you are called to live in peace. Brother, sister in Christ, are you guilty of letting things drum up or allowing perception of a situation to go down or happen by which you are wrestling, you are upset, you, you are struggling, mad, but you don't do anything about it? Christ in you means you do something about it. It means you lean in and you talk about it and you look to understand each other and you give a brother or sister a chance to Clarify what, what it was or what it wasn't, or to repent if it was sin, so that you could forgive them. We want to forgive each other. We want to give each other the benefit of the doubt. We want to live in peace. The peace that Jesus bought for us, that we are commanded to keep. Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So don't, don't call, and then if they don't answer, don't leave a voicemail and consider that your effort. <laughs> Make every effort. So yeah, sometimes that means, for the sake of peace, for the sake of our testimony as the body of Christ, you've got to go out of your way. You've got to change your weekend plans. You've got to 
You've got to defer that meeting or that meal because we, we need to have peace. We need to fight for that. Not fight against each other, not be content with it being unsettled, but to have that peace. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Number four, eternal peace. Oh, how sweet it will be when he does return and calls all of sin and death to its conclusion. Revelation 21, 1 through 4, Then I saw the new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. This is truly good news. Isaiah 53.5, he, speaking of Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5.7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Oh, how I pray it is so for each of us. And no matter what you face in this life, you know true peace in your life and in your soul. For you know what Jesus has done on your behalf and therefore what you have in him and only in him forever. Our final verse today is verse 20. John 20, 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Can you imagine what it was like (laughs) to see him standing there? Especially for those who saw him killed. Those who went through the witness of watching him torn apart. Saw what they did to him. Remembered what it looked like and what it sounded like. It's amazing. It's truly amazing if you can join me to really slow down and consider how absolutely amazing it was for them to see him standing there. Living, healthy, full of holes that his enemies put in him and his murder. He's saying, look. And it says, then the disciples were glad they saw the Lord. (laughs) That is the understatement of the century. I can't even fathom what what it will be like the day that I get to look at my resurrected Lord and see his face. See him holy and reigning and present in a way like I've never seen him before.
to be in his physical presence, in the physical presence of the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ, the champion of death, the victor, paid the penalty of my sin, the Lord of heaven and earth. Paul said in Colossians 1, 15-20, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Yeah, they were. And we will too. I can't help it. Again, this sermon is just so chock full of Jesus' words of what he said already throughout this gospel. And I give you one, one last one in John 16, 19 through 22. A little while, hear this, hear this. A little while, you will not see me, he said to them. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. And the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because of her hour has come. When she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born in the world. So also, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. Amen? This is true for us today, too. We will suffer. We will know sorrow. But we are victorious in Christ. He reigns on high. He intercedes for us every day. And he's coming again to take us home. He says, I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. Let's stand together. And hail the risen King with song and our lives this week. Pray with me. Lord, we, we thank you for this time together in your holy word. We thank you, Lord, for the preserving of your written word that we can study and know it. We pray for the, the tribes and the tongues and the nations who still don't have the translated and accurate, authoritative word of God. Lord, I, I pray that you would you would move mightily upon us in such a way where we would be transformed, in such a way where we would be joyfully convicted and, and awoken to a, another layer of sanctification and testimony and discipleship and, and worship for you. That you would be our everything, our all in all. 
And we will hail you as King of kings and Lord of lords, for you reign on high. Hear the praises of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.